0: Hey there everybody, welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host Morgan Dolan.
1: And I'm Norm. I'm just here to learn.
0: We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. Hey Norm.
2: <laughs> hey. Hey.
0: So what do you know about something called theosophy?
1: Theosophy. Mm -hmm. Well, I've never heard this word before, but if I'm going to break it down by what I think its parts are, I'm guessing the is like theism, like deity worship or God-based religion, and osophy is a study of?
0: Well, you're making me jump further into my notes outside of the introduction section to say that the word theosophy was first used in writing during the 3rd to the 6th century by the Alexandrian Neoplatonic philosophers. Okay. They used the term to denote an experiential knowledge that came through spiritual, not intellectual means. In the course of time, several mystics and spiritual movements in the West, mainly Christian based, adopted the word Theosophy in their teachings. Among them were Meister Eckhart in the 14th century. Jacob Bohem in the 17th, Emanuel Swedenberg in the 18th, and others in the last quarter century. It came to be associated with a woman called Madame Elena Petrovna Blavatsky.
1: Madame.
0: And that's who we're talking about today. She, along with uh, Henry Steele Olcott and a few others, start the Theosophical Society. And that is the group that can kind of holds the term to this day. And that's the subject of our two-parter we've got going on.
1: So you said the study of religion through firsthand experience?
0: Experiential Did I knowledge. Talk about? Yes, experiential experiential knowledge of the spiritual world, which makes theosophy really difficult to get our, our hands around. But before we dive too into theosophy itself, its placeholder, the person that holds theosophy, Madame Elena Petrovna Blavatsky, oh. Madame Blavatsky, who I will now joyously call HPB as she liked to be referred to. Of course she did. She is one of the occult heavy hitters. This is... Really? Oh, yeah. She, along with theosophy and this movement, is really at the root of so much what became New Age thought, alternate religion, bringing the East to the West. So much came back to her. And it all originates in the time that we were just in with spiritualism, late 1800s. And as I was looking into it, I, I love H. Baby as a figure. I got so into researching her life, the inconsistencies, what we know, what we don't know. I
2: mm-hmm.
0: think she's great. A real rock and roll mystic is how I like to <laughs> interpret her. <laughs> I love that. But theosophy itself, which can like spiritualism continues into the present day, is a little hard to get your hands around, because it seems quite general. And despite my mm initial desire to just talk about HPB for two episodes, I really wanted to get us into what it was theosophy, its principles, similar to how we approach spiritualism, in order to not only follow our pre-existing format, but start to see not only what are these ideas, but where are they coming from, and then really appreciate the interesting soup <laughs> that produced them. So, The theosophy is, is in many ways considered the synthesizing of Madame Blavatsky's ideas. But they oddly enough extended beyond her. So after she died, they really continued and re- took over the world. But also, the other thing to know about H.P.B. was she was sort of outed or proven publicly to be a so-called fraud in her mm-hmm. time, and it did not stop Theosophy from going.
1: Well, that's that's not <laughs> unprecedented, is it?
0: It is not. <laughs> So as I said, it had just a huge impact on everything that would become New Age. But it was also what I can tell one of the first line blurs when it comes to Eastern thought. So one of the reasons why in the Western we say it's Eastern, it's got Hinduism, it has Buddhism, we, we see it as all kind of this mush, it comes back to her. And the original way of spreading it all is kind of this equal spread.
1: Yeah. The soup you alluded to.
0: <laughs> the worst metaphor I could have <laughs>
1: Uh, It sounds pretty apt in that it's got a little bit of this, a little bit of this. It's not any of its components. It's just soup.
0: It's not quite a religion, though, based on some of the texts I was able to pull out of it, definitely seems like it belongs in a religious studies course. But it seems like the religious equivalent to Unitarianism, like very much into the how, into this generalized approach Versus having its own, it does not have a specific dogma. There's only about two Mm. rules you need, two or three rules you need to properly adhere to. And everything else is recommended reading.
1: So I I might be jumping ahead, but the, the way you defined it makes me wonder if it's one of those things where you can kind of only join if you go through an experience. Like I'm I'm thinking in terms of spiritualism right now where you might be really skeptical like some of the people you talked about until you go and you watch someone, you know, kind of kick the table and you're like, "Oh my god, spirits or spirits are in the furniture. I'm converted. Let's do this." Or am I overthinking the experiential part of it?
0: It's more like this is the religion or the the club that you are in when you are a seeker, when you want to know. And this is where okay. people went. So much like spiritualism had that practical element, this theosophy seems to be the place where, if you want a practical element bigger and more divine than spiritualism, more spiritual, you know, in terms of the individual experience, this is the place you get it. And once we talk about the modern, where modern theosophy takes people, it'll, I think that'll show. But to just briefly touch on how general some of these things can feel, yeah. general. But distinct from, especially from other religious orders as in religious dogma, I dove into a few serious academic texts. One is called Theosophy by Rudolf Steiner, An Introduction to the Spiritual Processes in Human Life and the Cosmos. And from Anthroposophic Press.
1: Anthro Wait, that's a publishing company?
0: Yes, it seems to be German,
1: or no, Swiss, pardon me. I'm getting a lot of like Germanic, Eastern European flavor in these names.
0: Originally published in 1994. But so here's the chapter titles. You have the essential nature of the human being, bodily nature of the human being, the soul nature, the spirit nature, body, soul, spirit. Then we have destiny and the reincarnation of spirit. And we have the three worlds, the soul world, the soul in the soul world after death, the country of spiritual beings, the spirit in spirit country after death, the physical world and its connection to the worlds of souls and spirits, thought forms, and the human aura.
1: I'm sorry, that was three different planes? That sounded like eight.
0: It did, didn't it? And then we had another text that I truly tried, will not say it successfully did it, was (laughs) Theosophy across boundaries, transcultural and interdisciplinary perspectives on a modern esoteric movement. Unfortunately this talked so much about modernism that I really, like many academic texts, had to go like wait, 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 what is modernism? let me go back to like the introduction
1: the, the aesthetic school of thought modernist
0: i don't even want to get into it it was too much for okay. <laughs> me. but the chapters where i tried where i tried to go with it was chapter 1 western esotericism and the orient in the first theosophical society Chapter 2, Hinduism, Theosophy, and the Bhagavad Gita within the global religious history of the 19th century. Chapter 3, Theosifying the Vietnamese Religious Landscape, a Circulatory History of Western Esoteric Movement in Southern Vietnam. So people have really thought about this stuff. This definitely hits in some...
2: Yeah,
1: well, it it sounds like they're just trying to pull common threads from seemingly disparate schools of thought. And especially if they're looking at the 19th century, they're looking at... As more cultures start to interact and more people you know, are traveling and interacting, what are we finding they have in common when it comes to esoteric thought or mysticism or whatever?
0: Because Blavatsky wasn't, she wasn't doing the cult leader thing. She wasn't saying, here's my dogma, here's the rules, here's how you could follow it. She was, in a way, trying to bring everything under an umbrella, that sort of theory of everything, mm-hmm. but about spirituals, trying to explain it all or find the explanation that explains it all. And the theosophy is the effort. of.
1: So when she's pulling people together, it's not like a cult leader, like recruiting you to kind of feel power and leadership. It's more if you have experience and perspective in a different school of thought, then we can we can have tea and talk about how that might fit under this larger umbrella.
0: Exactly. And one esoteric yeah. historian, Christopher Bamford, who I will be using to hunt for new topics in the future uh-huh. of the show, he posited that she should be known alongside Marx, Nietzsche, Freud as one of the true creators of the 20th century, which is especially significant since she died before it started. And her ideas yeah. really had reach. She was known to have influenced Thomas Edison, Mahatma Gandhi, Vasily Kandinsky, the painter, Frank L. Baum, the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz, Abner Doubleday, guy who we think invented baseball, got Alexander Scriabin, who was – he was a composer. You had Jawaharlal Nehru. Annie Passant, Einstein, is said to have kept a well thumbed copy of her magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, which we'll get into definitely in part two, on his desk. And some theosophists, and this is the claim that you see poked around, they claim that mm. the inspiration for his famous formula E equals mt squared came from theosophical musings or in connection to it because it's this equation that explains so much, and yet it is you know, short, mm. which theosophy it seems to be the goal of theosophy, finding explanations and finding the roots.
1: So now you've got me really concerned about how she's going to be outed as a fraud in, in some way, when it seems like a fairly innocuous thought leadership that is bringing other thought leaders together to have conversations in pursuit of knowledge. Like theosophy here is making me go, okay, this this seems like really good faith learning, sharing, and exchanging tradition.
0: It does. And it's... I, I won't say it is and I won't say it isn't. That's okay. This is also looking at this from the siosophy going into the founder. So ideas to founder, as we mm. did in some of our other episodes so far. We'll get into the fraud and the exposure later because it's so Aww. context dependent and mm. of its time in a way that okay. it w- we will get there in part two. There's so much before Does that. Did
1: she get Houdini'd? I know that's spoilers. Does she get Houdini'd?
0: I'm not ah. nodding my head. <laughs> Mm -hmm. but so she like many founders is a bit of an enigma so most founders as we've gone through tend to erase their past before they are they want to hit their ideas before the big
1: rollout and don't mistake me for the idea
0: pretty much and she was the same but interestingly enough she was also like that in present time she was really hard to pin down as a person. She was bad at marketing herself. Interesting. And there is not to this day a, a biography of her that's considered to be fully factual. That's wild. So there's inconsistencies about her early life, which we'll cover a lot in this episode, and there's inconsistencies even about her when she was on the scene because she just told people all sorts of different things. She could not be pinned down. She she kept herself an enigma, which is an interesting tactic for someone who's not doing, you know, the Maharishi angle of, you know, cult leadership.
1: Yeah, So charismatic. So w- was this prescient on her part where she just kind of knew she needed to have ideas that were bigger than her character? Or was she just a private person and liked to keep people not totally certain
0: i think the conclusion of that we'll have to look at by the after i've unloaded you the full okay. weight of who this lady and what we know about her but it's also we don't know because it depends mm, on how right. you interpret her looking back and again we're looking 150 years in the past if not more by that time but but we're gonna start first with theosophy and the ideas that mm-hmm. we're going to go ideas back to founder already took you through the weird exploration of the word theosophy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's really important to notice that the intellectual study and the daily practice of theosophy is only a a means of an end to inter-enlightenment. There's no daily rituals. There's no prayers. There's no anything you do as a theosophist to Mm -hmm. to sort of identify with this as... I think this is why it's not considered a religion. It's a spiritual pursuit. It's a spiritual... Arc type. I, I don't even have a word for it.
1: Personal too. Like I think of religion as much more community oriented. Mm-hmm. Like you gather with fellow believers and you go through rituals together. Whereas this is it like deeply individualistic, but it does seem like it's giving a, a tool set to individuals. And you can learn from each other but it's still up to you to have these experiences
0: there are lodges and chapters and groups and mm. all those trappings that you'd see with first word that comes to my mind is community center <laughs> a spiritual mm-hmm. community center or people who are furthering knowledge and when i take you through some of the modern offerings of theosophy that'll be really clear but it's it's structured similar to spiritualism, how you didn't have to sign up for much. And then you had papers, Mm -hmm. you had organizations that were just sort of loosely grouped around this word. And yet the activities were quite varied. You didn't have to do much to get in the door. And
1: and very non-hierarchical, it seems. Like there are people who are, you know, experienced or they kind of have their area of specialization, but there's not like deference or like rigidly controlling leadership.
0: This is true. So the headquarters okay. of theosophy or the Theosophical Society, I'll, I might use those interchangeably. And mm. the Theosophical Society is what was founded by Madame Blavatsky. It's right. headquartered in Adyar, India.
2: Whoa, okay.
0: And that's because Madame Blavatsky took all this to India and sort of moved the headquarters there. But the main places are you know, in what we think of as the West, England, the US. It was originally founded in New York but they move this operation over.
1: So New York, I guess I can see the some of the the surnames sounding like Germanic because that's that tracks with history. That's wild though. Mm-hmm. D- does that come up the the like German influence? Blavatsky is actually Russian okay And
0: that will all come up in the let's say origin story <laughs> of the <All> founder. Right. <laughs> but the itself, Getting back to the whole school of ideas, so mm. it post- this comes from their website. It postulates that the field of experience embraces more than this material and passing reality that we perceive through our senses. In fact, the lack mm. of knowledge about the higher aspects of a reality make us see things from a wrong perspective, which is the root cause of suffering. Pause from the quote from the website. That is also directly from Buddhism.
1: I was going to say this is not this isn't a huge leap to say that our senses are limited and we are biased by our dependence on these limited senses. Like,
0: Let me jump back to, the, to the, the TS website of how they explain this, which I find yeah. the, the place to go to be like, what are you all about? What do you sound you're yeah, about yeah. me? <laughs> we gain knowledge of the real, with a capital R, both in the universe and in human beings by means of holistic spiritual practice, and that includes study, meditation, and service. Below are some of the basic ideas the theosophical literature offers for consideration. However, the Theosophical Society does not ask its members to adhere to any of these ideas in particular. Members are only Hmm. expected to be in agreement with the three objects, in capital letters, of our organization. All right. Here are the ideas that they list. Now, well, the three objects I'll cover here in a moment. Mm -hmm. Behind everything, seen or unseen, there is an eternal, boundless, immutable, absolute reality, which is beyond the range of human thought. Both matter and consciousness, or spirit, are the two polar aspects of this reality. Hmm. Theosophy postulates a cyclical universe. A universe manifests, develops, and dissolves back into the absolute reality. After a period of cosmic rest, a new universe appears again.
1: (laughs) So theosophy is compatible with the Big Bang Theory and determinism.
0: Yes. You're starting to see why this is hard to pin down. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh.
0: Since everything proceeds from or manifests within this single reality, there is only one common life that pervades and sustains the whole universe. Every form of life is an expression of this unity. The visible universe is only its densest part. The whole universe contains also indivisible dimensions and planes of exceedingly tenuous kinds of matter energy interpenetrating the physical.
1: Oof. I mean, they're saying we are all part of a collective. Mm-hmm. We are all one individuality is an illusion. We are God.
0: Theosophy postulates a universe of purpose. Mm. The entire system, visible and invisible, is the scene of a great scheme of evolution, in which life moves to ever more expressive form, more responsive awareness, and more unified consciousness. There are no mechanical laws. The universe is pervaded by a non-anthropomorphic intelligence, which is both impermanent and transcended. Therefore, intelligence is at the basis of all laws of nature. At the same time, no supernatural miracles are possible. As HPV said, deity is law.
1: So... Everything is guided by transcendent intelligence. So basically magic isn't real. It sounds like the subtext is... If you don't understand something, it's because you're relying either too much on your senses or on the wrong senses, so you just can't explain it yet? That actually sounds kind of scientific.
0: Human consciousness is in essence identical with the ultimate reality, which Ralph Waldo Emerson called the Oversoul. This one supreme reality, being rooted in our real self, is shared by each of our particular beings, thus uniting us with one another. The gradual unfolding of this latent divine reality within us takes place over a long period of time by the process of reincarnation, which is an aspect of the cyclical law seen everywhere in nature.
1: Of the what law?
0: The law of reincarnation, the cyclical law, the idea that it
1: pierces, grows, and
0: Uh. destroys. The cycle of reincarnation is ruled by the law of cause and effect. As St. Paul said, whatever we sow, we will inevitably reap. This is the law of karma, by which we weave our own destiny through the ages. It is the great hope for humanity, for it gives us the opportunity to create our future by what we do in the present. (laughs) Okay. The Human Pilgrimage takes us from The Source, capital S, where we are an unconscious part of the One, capital O, leading us through an experience of many to finally take us back to the union of the One Divine Reality, but now in full awareness. Our goal is thus to complete the cosmic cycle of manifestation through which we attain a fully conscious realization of ourselves as an integral part of the One, no longer polarized between consciousness and matter, divided into self and other. The realization is enlightenment.
1: So if I'm tracking this correctly, it's a deterministic universe And we, it's like a rubber band, right? We snap from the Big Bang and eventually we're going to constrict back into the unity. But in between, we have free will, some infinite number of souls that will cycle through our different lives and the opportunity, but not the guarantee of achieving enlightenment before we rejoin the singularity.
0: I read it as in the tradition of a lot of Buddhist thought where you're Mm. reincarnated until you are off the wheel of suffering, until you let go Mm -hmm. enough of these things that sort of take our attention that don't really matter. Mm. And then you realize we're all one and melt away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Back to the soup. okay.
0: So the three objects of the Theosophical Society, these are the three things you have to sort Mm. of sign on to underline, give your signature. And they were formed when the Theosophical Society was formed in New York on November seventeenth, 1875, and is now incorporated in uh, Chennai on the 3rd of April 1905. And the three objects are... To form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color.
1: All right, strong start.
0: Two, to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. Okay. Three, to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man.
1: Well, that sounds fantastic. Right? I totally join right now. We're going to be kind to each other. We're going to listen actively to try to understand all the different starting points that people and cultures have. And uh, we're going to look critically at stuff that we can't yet readily explain and see if we can figure it out.
0: Maybe over a pot roast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is great.
0: (laughs) So they had a section on this website called, what exactly do you do? And I thought it was worthwhile to include.
1: (laughs) I love that. I love that. So, it's, so many people and websites fail to do that, and they get so far up their own butts that they're just like oh, experimental, you know, very Silicon Valley type stuff. I was so and They grateful. have a straight up, yes. <laughs>
0: I think it shows a self awareness about how this type of philosophy, theosophy is what you make it. It's what you how you yeah. take it and run with it. So, what exactly do you do? That is kind of a hard question to answer. Dot dot dot. The doing often being invisible to another. That's a quote I had to think on for a while. From an overall perspective, however, we stand for peace, justice, and harmony in the world and see that work must start within ourselves before these ideals can effectively spread to our immediate circles, out of the communities we live in and so on. If we see ourselves as separate from in any way, even in positions of perceived power, these ideals will be harder, if not impossible to achieve. Disharmony and conflict will then always prevail. We endeavor to remember in these inevitable situations, as we are, after all, human and reactive creatures, that we are ultimately made in the same stuff. And to realize this in our core, not just in words, this is the real work in every situation that life throws our way. That is why the doing is invisible to another. Only we know what inner work we are doing, and yet that is the most powerful force we can develop, and that then we can uplift us in all situations, and ultimately all of mankind at large. That is the journey we are all on, but the journey starts with small steps, where we each small step, set patiently in front of another, has a huge impact. It is in the fact the universal law of cause and effect. We recognize, however, that each person's journey will be different, and yet the same perfect in each one's imperfection, as we are all students, each one of us with our own personal learnings, yet whether we know it or not, all moving along towards the same endless, I'm into it.
1: (laughs) So are they going to elaborate on service? Because it sounded like there was some emphasis on like you're working on yourself, but part of the goal is to do acts of service for other people.
0: I didn't see a lot of this, but I imagine sort of in the acts of service way that a church or any sort of community yeah.
1: club would do Just trying to leave the world a little bit better than you found it that while undertaking that internal spiritual development
0: any sort of community center being like a rotary club
1: yeah adopt a highway
0: i could see that happening it's because yeah. the way they group things is not specifically hierarchical, like you said, it could be also Mm -hmm. one person and like their friends hanging out their house, and they get on the website and are officially mandated, I could see them being like, well, why don't we go, you know, have have a pub trivia night team and donate the proceeds to charity, that kind of thing I see as being within falling within the service category, as well as bigger things that other like faith organizations do I don't have a lot of experience, but I know they're there.
1: But it's it's not overt because they're putting so much emphasis on what's going on internally. It's like you'll you'll know it when you feel it. It's hard to express because it's you know this internal work. It's emotional and it's cognitive. And then you go out and you be kind in the world, and that will look different depending on where you're at. Yeah, it's a that's that's I, lovely.
0: I'm into it. I'm into the way they describe it. But again, yeah. what. Are you actually doing? So I went over to their School of Wisdom, which was a section of their their homepage. At what mm-hmm. lectures and activities were going on for members? And a ton of it is on Zoom. And there are some top. Here are <clears> some <throat> of the topics that were coming up. And this was from a home base in India. You have exploring meditation, the real occult power of a human being, Jainism and its context in Indian philosophy and literature, love and death in the great spiritual traditions, and. Then in an interesting rabbit hole, there was a list on the Adair page of all the different international headquarters and the year they were founded. And I found the the Theosophical Society in America, which seems to be the official one. Very nice website, plumb full of resources, you know, online Mm -hmm. learning center. What about me reading things you can download, the whole shebang. And it's in a building that looks like a high school in Wheaton, Illinois. And then I found another Theosophical society that claims to be the international headquarters in Pasadena. Okay. And by fine, I mean like when I Google, okay, you know, theosophical headquarters in. And, yeah, yeah. and so these two opposing things, and they don't seem to be adversarily targeting each other. There's no, this yeah. is the real one TM. I mean, one was listed with the international group and one wasn't, but I can only imagine the academic tiff that led mm-hmm. to the separation. Couldn't find any any roots to that, but I, I'm sure it's there. I mean, both have resources, online course books. They don't seem to be trying to like take anything away from the other, but, but it's very interesting that there were two living in.
1: It does sound like a practice what you preach situation, though. Like, it doesn't look good for either of you if you're denigrating the credentials of each other.
0: I can't say they are active. Again, actively, there's no active sort of brand mm-hmm. warfare, but I What led to this happening? I'm curious. Mm -hmm. So back on the main, I went back to the official place in Wheat, and here's some of the online courses that are offered. Okay, five classes on the psychology of the Yoga Sutras. Mm. Four classes in at home with Theosophy, Theosophical Teachings on the Chakras. All right. A lecture on angels in the mystical traditions. A four-part class on tarot for absolute beginners. Theosophy has a creedless inquiry webcast, embodied Mm -hmm. Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism for all people by Rabbi Matthew Panek. and they they look cool. <laughs> I wish they were in my time zone. Like it sounded like stuff yeah, this, I would be into.
1: <laughs> it really does just sound like things you might be interested in. Curious like it's, It doesn't sound. It's not a degree process. Like they're not trying to credential you. It's just like it's like they said, comparative study of religion and mysticism and science. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of nail down. Theosophy subverted na- being nailed down in its time. And yet,
1: yeah.
0: it spread. So from that list of worldwide centers and when they were founded, here's some years to show just this spread that people were yeah. into it. So headquarters in India, 1875. Wheaton, Illinois, 1885. 1888 in England, 1891 in a different part of India, <laughs> 1895 in Sweden, 1896 New Zealand, 1902 Italy, 1905 Cuba, then lots of places in South America through the 1920s and, you know, grew and then more recently 1997 Ivory Coast, 2007 Croatia, 2013 Russia, 2013 Bangladesh. And there's different rules for what constitutes a lodge versus a section or a branch. And I didn't include anyone that's just like associated with this individual in this country, but but that was there. And for something that's so amorphous as just hanging out and talking about comparative study and having to make that meaning yourself, it caught on.
1: And this isn't someone like globetrotting, starting these up. These are people organically however they get to it, bringing it into their respective communities.
0: I'm pretty sure that some of like the key people in the movement went around and sort of sowed the seeds, but sure. they had to keep going. It can't be completely without organic support. But I'm going to read to you now an article from 1881 from a magazine called The Theosophist called, titled Misconceptions About the Theosophical Society by HPB that just really highlights all the questions I had about Why is it so hard to pin down? And clearly this was present from the beginning. Many misconceptions prevail as to the nature and objects of the theosophical society. Some fancy it a religious sect. Many believe it is composed of atheists. A third party are convinced it is the sole object, is the study of the occult science and the initiation of green sands into the sacred mysteries. If we have had one, we certainly have had a hundred intimidations from strangers that they were ready to join at once if they could be sure that they would shortly be endowed with cities or the power to work occult phenomena. Mm-hmm. The beginning mm-hmm. of a new year is a suitable time to make one more attempt. We wish it would be the last to set these errors straight. <laughs> So then let us say again, one, the Theosophical Society teaches no new religion, aims to destroy no old one, promulgates no, promulgates no creed of its own, follows no religious leader, and distinctly and emphatically is not a sect nor ever was one. It admits worthy people of any religion to membership on the condition of mutual tolerance and mutual help to discover truth. The founders have never consented to be taken as religious leaders. They repudiate any such idea and they have not taken and will not take disciples.
1: We're we're studying together. The point is that these are rules for just a respectful, safe space classroom.
0: Two, the society is not composed of atheists, nor is it any more conducted in the interest of atheism than in that of deism or polytheism. It has members of almost every religion and is on equally fraternal terms with each and all. I think that speaks to some of the concerns at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three, not a majority, nor even a respectable minority, numerically speaking, of its fellows are students of occult science or ever expect to become adepts. All who cared for the information have been told what sacrifices are necessary in order to gain the higher knowledge, and few are in a position to make one-tenth of them. He who joins our society gains no cities by that act, nor is there any certainty that he will ever see the phenomena, let alone meet with an adept. Some have enjoyed both the opportunities, and so the possibility of the phenomena and existence of, quote, do not rest upon our unverified assertions. Those who have seen things have perhaps been allowed to do so on account of some personal merit detected by those who showed them the cities, or, for other reasons known to themselves and over which we have no control. For thousands of years, these things have, whether rightly or wrongly, been guarded as sacred mysteries, and Asiatics at least need to not be reminded that often, even after months or years of the most faithful, assiduous personal service, the disciples of a yogi have not been shown, quote, miracles or endowed with powers. What folly, therefore, to imagine that by entering any society, one might make a shortcut to adeptship, the weary traveler along a strange road is grateful even to find a guidepost that shows him his way to the place of destination. Our society does not else perform this kindly office for the searcher of truth, and it is much.
1: It's not witch school. Like <laughs> they're not gonna make you do magic. Pretty Just much chill.
0: <laughs> but yeah. imagine that was published in eighteen eighty one, like right from jump. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. you're jumping on bad bad press. But also speaking to, you know, you can see how this is in the roots of spiritualism.
1: Everyone yes. wants to talk to ghosts. Well, and people who are seeing like flyers for mediums maybe wouldn't make that distinction. It's like, oh, did you hear about this society? Did you hear about this speaker to the dead? And you would just kind of blur those. It'd be like, oh, they have a school. They do teaching. So I can be a medium. Show so me how. So I can make like, sparks fly <laughs> out of my
0: fingertips. Have yeah. ectoplasm. Tell me the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So... Now we get into the fun part. Last time we talked <laughs> about human design and its founder, Rob Uruhu. Yeah. And and so we mentioned how his life was really wiped off the board. And that was, I mean, mm-hmm. small pickings compared to how HBB wiped her like life off the board before mm-hmm. the beginning of the Theosoph- Theosophical Society. And the I, I likened it to L. Ron Hubbard last time, I think, when we talked about in our human design episode. And in a way how they rewrote or how they present his past in
2: Mm -hmm.
0: those resources is in a way sort of the two sides of the standard, either it's completely non-existent or it's shown to then have value, which in a way are two approaches that are equally unsatisfactory when it comes to the life of a founder. Either we know nothing about you, which becomes suspicious or we know crafted marketing angle, which is also mm. su- suspicious. And I think that shows how it's all uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's, it's designed to get something.
0: And in a way, it makes me wonder, And I'm sure as we go through our paces with this journey we're on, we'll see, I don't think there's a way to do it right. Because either there's a hunger of like wanting to devour the messenger that I don't think any way of presenting their past actually satisfies.
1: Yeah. Well, the same desire for guarded knowledge is what draws you into this. So I think it would make sense that that would extend to biographical information about influencers and founders.
0: So the list of questionable gurus that have sort of done this restructuring of their past is pretty long and especially in this era of people we think of. So you've got G.I. Gurdjieff, who I'm sure do an episode on later, you have Rasputin, Carlos Castaneda. All these people have huge impacts, but their origin story, how this all came to where, how did it spring up is not dealt with by themselves. And yet the thing that is most fascinating for those of us that look back. And are trying to sort of look at this in argument. So, like I said, like HPV, they all are wiping off their life before their ideas. And in a modern sense, it it really doesn't, again, it doesn't feel strange to do this. Because it's what anyone does when you're trying to make a brand. And like I said, it Mm -hmm. can't be a black mark against her. But it really leaves me torn looking at the stuff when it comes to how we've talked about truth and realness. Because like I said earlier, there's no fully factual Biography of her. Right. We don't completely know this is what happened to her. I'm drawn mostly from the Gary Lockman biography of it because I love him as an occult historical writer, and he is the most even-handed. There's some that really take Blavatsky was a fraud. Here's how she was full mm-hmm. of it, and it, I think Lockman takes that into account when he writes. His work on it, but because also I like Blavatsky, so I want to see the the fun side of it, and also because Mm -hmm. we're looking at someone from the 1800s, it's I feel a bit freer to do so than if we were looking at someone from modern day or even from the mid century.
2: Yeah, no, that tracks.
0: And I'll probably end up repeating the known inaccuracies about her. I'm sure anyone who listens to this will have done their PhD in Blavatsky and have a much more honed sense of no, no, this is the absolute truth, but. Doing the best I can with what Mm. I got and what I got from Lachman.
1: Yeah. Take me with you.
0: So she was born in what is now Ukraine in 1831. We have it on a map into nobility. And her father is actively putting down the Poland rebellion for Tsar Nicholas I. All right. This is the same one who was later killed by anarchists and uh, the infamous, the grandfather of the infamous last Tsar of Russia. And his motto for the empire at the time was orthodoxy. Autocracy and nationality.
1: Ooh. So yeah, <laughs> this I'm already sensing some like, I'm mad at my father, <laughs> rebelliousness, was, maybe leading to this.
0: It was a very clear pushback against quote modernizing the empire.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I'll call it Russia for shorthand. But the borders are much more like what you see on the USSR. Like it's right. a huge landmass in Asia. And to get a sense of it, like, this is Russia of Tolstoy, war and peace. It's, there's not a single railway in the entire landmass until Blavatsky was seven. Like her contemporaries at the time were Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Gogol. And the crazier thing, because you say those names and you think, okay, I'm thinking Bridgerton, I'm thinking you know uh, lawns and drinking tea. No, Russia was still like had serf classes. They had not left medieval power structures behind. And so her maternal line with her grandmother, she was a wildly well self-educated princess true princess. And she was so adept at archaeology that she was lauded by the founders of the Royal Geographic Society. So that would have been the late 1700s.
1: That is so specific.
0: And her mother had a pen name and was thought of as like the Russian George Sand. She was adept at languages, passed that down to her daughter, but she was a literary power.
1: Fascinating.
0: And I think also in keeping with what we can expect from this time period, her... Husband just poo pooed the whole thing and like thought it was lame and like didn't (laughs) support
1: it in the slightest. I'm fascinated that she's able to unpick so many details of her early life, considering how, especially for the time, they kind of seem like an it family. Like, you've got this power couple, they're directly connected to royalty and you know, like these ancient power structures, they're active. Politically and I want to say culturally and scientifically even it sounds like like that's that's a lot of ink to try to paint over.
0: There's a lot of testimony from her early life comes from her one of her sisters who Mm. her story also shifted Blavatsky's story also shifted, but there's also digging into objective sightings kind of what was we can know from the time and where these happened. And it seems like Lachman's trying to pinpoint, you know, here's what we best know to build this narrative. And a lot of this context stuff to me is the most fascinating because it's the thing we kind of objectively know more than how Blavatsky experienced her past can see here's what was going on. And I, I find it just fascinating, especially comparing it to what we think of from the Regency period in Western Europe.
1: Right. Well we're 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 post popular revolution in several what we would call Western nations. And you've got me wondering now if her trying to rewrite her own history isn't her just kind of reading the room a little bit in Eastern Europe and Russia and just kind of being like being descended from royalty and power is not gonna make me popular.
0: I disagree on a couple of points because Later in the century, so we're in the you know 1840s at this point. Later, right. when Rasputin hits the scene at the turn of the century, occultism was the thing. Seances were hugely popular. It was a huge pastime. It was a vibe, and it was a vibe going strong amongst nobility. But when even when mm-hmm. I think about that in my t- in my head, it feels like light years away, even technology speaking. Not a single railway. So her dad, let me let me take you on this journey. So yeah, her dad's in the army, and she and her mother are like stomping around from Poland to what is now Ukraine, it's at Sbilisi. They are moving around with his army career in an era where there's no trains.
1: This sounds like a version of hell. <laughs>
0: As someone who just moved, you can appreciate. (laughs) Okay, so her mother's die when she's eleven. Her mother dies when she's eleven. It's very sad because she was pretty close to her mom. And her mom had her when she was seventeen. So mom only dies when she's twenty eight. I mean, weird. This is medieval, medieval ages. People are getting knocked off the. And so she and her siblings go to live with her her well to do grandparents, and apparently, like weird things start happening to her. She's talking to spirits. She's quote, putting pigeons to sleep with what is described as Solomon's wisdom. So the fact that she's just putting pigeons to sleep. Um, (laughs) She was apparently saved from a horse accident that should have killed her. Like she slipped in the saddle, had her foot stuck in it and did not die, did not bang her head against the ground like a pumpkin because a, quote, tall Indian in whole linen helped keep her head aloft that was how she described it apparently at the time and what so she's weird like wednesday adams weird things are happening to yeah. her. <laughs> these
1: these aren't just things happening to her like Putting pigeons to sleep with the wisdom of Solomon. I mean I don't is not a passive act.
0: That said, I did once see a guy on the street in Seattle at, when I was coming out of a Starbucks who had like just a ton of looked very happy and had a ton of pigeons on him, just very gentle and docile and these were definitely street pigeons. It was in the middle of downtown and I, I had to give him a couple dollars because I was like, this is kind of amazing. So maybe he could put pigeons to sleep.
1: And he wasn't just dropping bird seed. He was just vibing with, the, with he was, the pigeons. He was
0: on his knees, arms out kind of like Christ, didn't look like a true weirdo. Looked fairly normal, which was what made it, I guess, all the more memorable all these decades later. <laughs> and he just had a ton of pigeons on him. They were eating out of his hand. They were, they were nibbling his ear. I don't know why or why he let them. Filthy animals, but... I guess people – it is the one thing that came to my mind when I read that line. I was like, it can be done.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Experiential wisdom.
0: Okay, and here's the interesting part. So she dives into her great-grandfather's occult library. And so you think 1840s or 1850s and a great-grandfather, you're talking – late 1700s. Her grandfather had tomes from Saint-Germain, the alchemist, the French alchemist, Freemasonry, a bunch of secret society books, which were so taboo because secret societies in Russia had been outlawed on pain of death by uh, Catherine the Great.
1: So is this is this like a rich person in Europe just collecting rare books to display them? Or was he like, oh yeah, I've read all of these. This one's my favorite.
0: I think it was a true interest collection because Catherine the Great was imprisoning people who were a part of secret societies, and you've got their literature on in your library. It's a bold move. Yeah, it was part. It was partially a response to the theory that secret societies were behind the French Revolution. Mm. And you know, Freemasonry. It's like, well, you've got a bunch of radical free thinkers. What was the orthodoxy, autocracy, and national- nationalism? <laughs> Look, it's you know, pretty bold. But can you imagine how cool that must have been to be? In there, as a teenager, talk about the feeling of secret knowledge. It's books that are truly pain of death. You're living like Wednesday Adams. You're reading stuff that you know, you're not definitely not supposed to have talking about
1: sedating pigeons.
0: <laughs> there's an, uh, there's another uh, thing that I didn't include in my notes, but it was that she had a like a surf or one of these people that worked. I couldn't it's not clear if it was her servant or if it was a, a companion of some kind, but because where she's located, Isn't we're not not Moscow, not Saint Petersburg. It's much more closer to the Caspian Sea.
1: But it's like an estate, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but it's near Volgograd on the river of that river that leads to the Caspian Sea. Yeah, it's near the mouth of it. Anyway, that was at the time was had a lot of nomadic Buddhists. Maybe they're still there, and it's a very multi-ethnic region, obviously. Yeah. one of them was said that he instructed her in the, quote, language of the bees. Okay. Which I, I think Lockman <laughs> just dropped it probably because he read it and was like, this is weird
1: because there's no further <laughs> explanation of what on earth that could be. I mean, my first thought is it sounds like they had a little apiary. And one of the people who worked the estate was just like, you actually don't need protective equipment if you just don't do certain things that make bees angry. Oh my God,
0: you're Sometimes right. That wild. is probably it. Maybe it's like the pigeons too. Maybe they just go to sleep if you do something.
1: Yeah, just if you don't trigger their fight-flight fight, flight response, then they're just like, all right, maybe you're part of the flock. You, this is
0: chill. You Without naming names, you know someone who might have the answer to that question, and you should mm-hmm. inquire.
1: I'm very curious now, but...
0: Ask her and, I, and,
1: and bring it back for part two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so this is sort of setting the the early life stage, right? And so she gets so she moves some around this like family circle of princes and nobles who are just into the occult, and they seem to give more air and fire to her interest. There was a lot of the narrative was a little windy for what I wanted to communicate here, but she seems to be not only into this study of the occult, but into and I say a cult because that seems to encompass all sorts of spiritual learning. But she's being exposed yeah, yeah. to a variety of things in her early life by moving around for the military, and then as she's raised in the circle of people who are into it, she's voicing her opinion, wanting to know, and getting not accolades, certainly not that, but she's getting response. She's getting yeah, enough like that she
1: positive enough that she can so keep going. I gotta ask because she, the way you've described it to me, she's putting something together that's very open and permeable to everybody, you know, no race, creed, color. And I guess most of my like historical knowledge of colonialism is from the British perspective, which is like very condescending toward all non-British, you know, non-elite people. And I know that, you know, everybody's in bed with everybody when you get to the monarchy, even at this level, but is the Russian occupation and presence in these different areas, and like very multi-ethnic areas, does it not match that British model? Because it sounds like they are being chill interacting with different people from different classes and backgrounds. And I don't see a British colonial outpost doing that.
0: I'm pretty sure that anything that has this level of social like stratification, so much so that people say the middle middle ages are not over in this region. Right. I don't think we could ever describe them as being chill. However, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. However, i I notice just by people's last names alone that you mm. are seeing a much more spread of hierarchy. But I would not be surprised if power in this in the upper class is centralized enough that it is noticeable, I guarantee it is beyond noticeable who's in and who's out. right? And so her her birth, like her birth name was von Hahn, very German. Germanic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the way up in Poland. And she marries a guy named Nikifor Blavatsky. And she's over in what is now Georgia, or maybe she's still over by the Volga. She goes to Georgia at some point. So you're moving around. But as I said, she has nomad, there's nomadic Buddhists. You have varying religions of what, do you know, Russian Orthodoxy. I'm sure there's Catholicism in Poland. And th- it seems multicultural in a way that so, British occupation did not acknowledge.
1: Like the power is still stratified. But socially, it's not – they're not treating the locals like they're dirty or something like that. You know, like you can hang with people.
0: I I get the feeling. I'm sure it wasn't nice. I I think if we could describe it, when we conjure up images of like British colonialism, and you see like, oh, it's this familiar guy in a uniform in just – exotic locales and how there's these exotic trinkets, my first inclination is to say it's probably something similar of these clear power structures, who's in charge, but just something that feels very novel, or at least would be novel to us in terms of the mixture of what's exposed. Mm. I don't think she had the wherewithal to comment on it. And I can't say she was breaking any bounds. It's unclear whether she was outside of the realm of proprietary with any of her actions mm. other than I'm sure nice girls didn't get into the occult <laughs>
1: yeah. well yeah and she comes by it honestly and
0: also she seemed to be pr- a pretty big rebel in her time and here's why mm. so she could not escape that she had to get married in her once she hit mm. 16, 17 18 everyone's pushing her to get married and she's not into it so who does she pick? She picks someone who her mother kind of meanly called the plumeless raven. Well, it couldn't have been her mother. It must have been another ma- ma- maternal figure.
1: Triarchal, yeah.
0: Yeah. Her hus- The guy she picks named Nikifor Bovatsky, considered incredibly old being in his 40s. Oh,
1: crusty old beta.
0: And oddly enough, her, her own mother had been married to a much older guy. So this seems mm-hmm. to have been modeled. And she agrees to marry him and even... In her wedding vows, sort of under her breath, when they say, will you honor and obey this man? I certainly will
1: not. Wait, what? This is on the record? On the record. She said it audibly and everyone was like, that's Let's (laughs) let's just keep going. She's
0: so not into it that after the ceremony, she's trying to convince him, like, I need to leave. This isn't going to happen. You should just let me go. And. He puts an armed guard on their wedding night to make sure she doesn't leave. So the, she, the threat of her piecing out was pretty real.
1: <laughs> I mean, good honor. But also, boy, she's really just barely painting by numbers here to, to placate so she's the power around her. Pretty
0: much. So she's 18. And Nicofor seems to try to make it work for A few months before they eventually decide to like send her away. She was somewhere in Turkey near the Black Sea, and the plans to send her back to Odessa and then up to St. Petersburg. Like, it's how much can it not work where in four months you're ready to like (laughs) do that journey in a time before four
1: months in, off to St. Petersburg with you?
0: But she doesn't make it, that does not happen, and her wander years seem to begin.
1: So, do they know? Or did she just like skip the train and it shows up and they're like, all right, welcome to Saint. <gasps> where is she? It,
0: I like to think of it something like that. It seems like she got on the boat, did not get off the boat or went somewhere else. Right. And this is where we get into like the real, the real conjuring yeah. of what could it be? We don't quite know. And I think of it as any way you slice it, it is fascinating. But here's what... I'm communicating to you based on what I <laughs> took in.
1: <laughs> and she was, you said 18. She's
0: 18. When we
1: kind of hit the ellipses in her bio.
0: Yes. And she doesn't start, hit the scene in New York for at the beginning of the next episode where we see the founding of theosophy and all that stuff. Till She's in her mid 40s. She's 18 now. So there's years here.
1: I mean, honestly, isn't that what Jesus does in the Bible? Like we have, we have the nativity, And it's just like, and then this fully formed, bearded, chiseled 35-year-old came out and was like, I walk on water. I make wine and fish.
0: I mean, talk about a founder backstory that we... Yeah. But so it's very hard to get a clear picture on it. Um, I read it in like a pretty fun and theatrical way because I (laughs) want to. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But even if none of it happened, it's still, it doesn't invalidate. I guess the role of these years. I think they they serve sort of to explain and I'll get into why. So she never gave a straight answer about it. And
2: it's
0: (laughs) not, again, like I said, not directly relevant to the creation of theosophy. We're in the soup making stage. They're the part of the soil and the context. That's how I wrote it in my notes. So basically, she seems to be traveling the world, living her interest. She goes to Constantinople, so now Istanbul, Greece, Odessa, Cairo, Paris, London. She has men who are just into her wherever she goes. However, she was famously asexual. Really? Yes. And at
1: one point- And openly.
0: She was very asexual. It's not clear if she was asexual at this time, but later in her life, she was very famously not into it. And she had a couple horse riding accidents like from her youth but also this that said like definitely could never have had children and
1: Hmm. so i i I gotta ask Mm -hmm. just because of the time period we're talking about at least with men like sociable men be like he was a lifelong bachelor and had many close friends it's like dude was gay like we we can't say that we can't historically say that but like am i is, is that is that the subtext here? Like, is it more acceptable for her to just be this sort of virginal, sexless person than to acknowledge that maybe she liked to bump with the enemy?
0: Oddly enough, I would really say no. Really? Because men flock to her. And you'll see this even, in, especially in the second part of her life. Men like her. Men are drawn to her. In this early years, well, yeah, there's a whole world- Men
1: like, men like lesbians. Like- <laughs> I,
0: just... I didn't see, at least in this stage, there's not enough evidence that she had an, a significant female companionship where you could even draw right. the subtext. Maybe. Okay. But I, I didn't see... It's not the first thing that struck me when okay. reading through it. She did have... The main guy that seems to show up in this these early years was, again, Dmitry Mitrovich. And it was a convoluted story that I couldn't even grasp quite was the main thread. His accounts are some of the evidence that like she... I think she it was written that she saved him from a band of Corsican ruffians which is like, like I said very theatrical and it was still just hard to like pull out like what's the thing I need to tell Norm about this <laughs> So, I, I scrapped that whole subtext so I didn't spend another you know, 20 minutes on just this guy that, because there's more stuff to talk about. So, she, yeah, yeah. she's rolling her own cigarettes and is a huge chain <laughs> her entire life.
1: God bless her.
0: And yeah, like I said, famously asexual. She did seances all over the place and it's really vague how she has money. It's assumed she's. I was going to ask. It's assumed she's bankrolled, like either from her husband or from her father or from somebody. But she's usually cited in like
1: nice places. So this is making me wonder about the men flocking to her. Is she like leading them on and getting cashed out by just she's so charismatic that rich dudes are willing to just support her? I don't
0: know. It's a theory. At some point she makes to Canada and then comes back to Europe. It's assume she goes to India. And then here's the the biggest controversy is everything surrounded Tibet. And when she went into Tibet and was denied, and I'll get into that in a second, <laughs> in a moment, but like there's some she, 10 years after she just disappears, she shows up mm-hmm. in St. Petersburg in when her in basically at a party her sister's at. So you imagine not <laughs> at her sister's house. It seemed like it was like a, a relative's Christmas party. It's yeah. just like, hey, <laughs>
1: I've been around. (laughs) I made it.
0: Where have you been? What's going on? She's essentially synthesized as, I've been around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she does the Johnny Cash song.
0: So she enters. And then you have the next 10 years of her sort of being returned into her family. Nicafor isn't trying to make anything happen at this point. That seems to be (laughs) dropped. And... So again, trying to find a single narrative with which to share with you it was not just overloading you with kind of meaningless details. But at some point, she goes to Tbilisi in what's now Georgia, where her grandma dies. And then, mm. yeah, just another 10 years of traveling, trying to get into Tibet again. She got a reputation as a magician and a seer, basically anything that we would now put in the umbrella of a psychic. And she's all over the place. She goes with her godmother to London. She's all over the shop.
1: So when you say she's doing seances, you mean she is acting as the medium.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like she's not patronizing mediums like trying to reach her mom or something. Like she's becoming the practitioner that others might seek out.
0: Definitely. I'm sure she was the visitor of seances, but this one means she's in mm. her interest. In whatever these are, she is living her interest, however she's getting money, which is partially also why I say like there's people that biographers that can test whether any of it happened, like if she made it to India or she made it to Tibet. It doesn't matter. It's just either way you have 20 years of
1: going. Experiential learning, it sounds like.
0: It did not sound like she was in one place for very long, which given just how annoying is it to travel now? You know, to mm-hmm.
1: that's what I'm thinking. Like, if you're not a merchant marine or a soldier in this time, there's there's not that much traffic between all these places, certainly not between continents. No. So she is. I think even if some
0: of the more disputed things happened again, the whole thing with Tibet, it's. Still fascinating, just how much she's getting around and the experiences that you're having there. And just from an experiential, like you said, standpoint. And then in 1873, she goes to New York. And that's kind of the beginning of Madame Blavatsky on the scene. And she's still an unknown at that point.
1: Yeah, but this is her cotillion.
0: Mm -hmm. So the big source of debate is, like I said, whether or not during these 20 years she meant to Tibet, whether she got there, whether she learned you know, anything. And she claims she did. And this is her claims are again fluctuating, but right. the word secret school gets thrown around. And she talks about what's called the masters. I will see how much I use the word masters in the second half <laughs> in part two, because yeah. I think it's a little distracting. And they seem to also be an anchor, or I mean, they're the famous focal point. In her story, because she attributed so much of her knowledge to these masters, you know, Kootu. These are people I learned from, and it, I do not see how these are possible as a physical person. However, there is still testimony from, especially for the second part of her life, that they were real people. That there were. It's not just completely made up.
1: I'm a little confused why that is a point of contention. If if I get uh, an MFA and I read the classic literature, I would refer to those authors as the masters, and no one would dispute that I'm reading, you know, Emerson or Plato or whatever else. Is is that such a controversial claim to make that I, I traveled and learned from masters of their fields?
0: I feel like it's the equivalent of saying you studied at a college that doesn't have a website. Ah, uh, I see. Like it's, yes, it should work. But I think even by the standards of the time, there was still a demand of <laughs> give us a little bit more. Be a little bit yeah, more descriptive, yeah, yeah. and that this does not thin. not seem to be her strong suit in any way. So the just know that everything's called masters in the realm of madame Blavatsky is sort of a uh, touchy point. And I, I think, yeah, a few things are going. Uh, going. So let's look at a spectrum. Uh, so first, there's there's no masters. It was all hmm. self taught because she was reading books. She apparently had a fantastic recall, like photographic memory, and translating. Okay. But she's got a she's a smart chick and. She's enga- clearly engaged in this interest. And as I know from just being engaged in an interest, you just, you pick up stuff. You can't remember again where exactly it came from. Mm-hmm. And it starts to synthesize over, you know, imagine 20 years of being in a deep interest with the education to get into it. This
1: is like recorded knowledge. She's not inventing this stuff. Whether she can remember the exact source for each thing, she is absorbing it. From external sources. And
0: then we get also onto the further on the spectrum of, does she have abilities? What are these abilities? Is it like we've talked about how psychic abilities sort of exist on the spectrum of sensitivity? Is she on the spectrum? Because from her sister's testimony about her early life, weird stuff's happening. And even Mm -hmm. after she... Came back weird stuff. She's not. She's not full, fully wired.
1: She hasn't. <laughs> like the, she hasn't quit the pigeons yet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we don't see a lot of testimony about pigeons, but I don't think you're just like, yeah, Jenny. Like you know, Helena's back, and no time has passed. It's definitely going back to your hometown <laughs> after some after twenty years.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so because her sister, so her sisters, her sister changes some of the details, but she doesn't change that. Like there was something about her that she was there was something going on. So in this case, the masters are a way of anchoring knowledge and anchoring the source of any abilities instead of just being like, I-, I can do, you know, lights flicker on and off, whatever that the equivalent of that time is. Raps were something that she was definitely reported to have done, which again, we disproved a bit in, in spiritualism, but it has to be taken into account. It it strikes me a little bit like how human design presented itself in DNA and science of the early 90s to make it right. much more legitimate or anchored kind and of real.
1: Bolstering it. And yeah.
0: so it makes me wonder also how much later in the 1870s she's anchoring what she wants to express in theosophy in this way of creating origin for knowledge. Yeah.
1: I'm- the whole school that she's developed, though, is also very earnest about taking new ingredients through comparative study and making it part of the whole understanding and exchange. So it's not like it it doesn't read to me as a total grifty thing to be like new science. That was actually a part of this the whole time. It's more like new discovery. We need to make room for this knowledge. Like that's one of the three objects.
0: And so the occult abilities or the psychic abilities of Madame Blavatsky, whatever they were, I don't really know how well the historical record could preserve that sort of subtlety.
2: Yeah. It's yeah.
0: again, like she was outed as a fraud in her time, which adds a right. certain layer to all of it. But I you know, the what matters so much more is the impact and interpretation of ideas and method. And looking at theosophy as we did in the first part, there's it feels like a method in and of itself. It's a way of approaching these larger questions of the universe. And I wonder as she's She's not actively trying to take herself to the next level as sort of launching herself as a guru or as a speaker, which I think is commendable. But she does want to be taken seriously for her ideas and for her participation in this interest in a time when she is very much excluded because of her gender.
1: I was going to say, this sounds very proto-feminist. She's not trying to scam anybody, but she wants to be seen as a scholar, a writer, like a legitimate... Thought leader.
0: In secret societies as well. You know, any sort of group that's like into what occult secret society she wants, she would probably have loved to have joined. And being a woman barred her from so much of that, both mm-hmm. in Russia and in the United States. Yeah. And so how far can you take individual study? And then how do you give merit to what you've learned over individual study? This
1: is really interesting. If if you take at face value that she is as well traveled as she purports to be, what is that experience as a woman going from place to place and bouncing between power structures? Because these are not all part of like that European incest puddle of the monarchy and just constantly running into obstacles because she's female. And just like earnestly studying this weird photographic memory, a, a clear passion for the material and just being shut out and I, that's common across lots of spiritual and religious schools too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can only speak to like the priesthood, you know, <laughs> women can't enter the priesthood or, or whatever. Like there's no, uh, what do you call them? There's, there's not a lot of female rabbis. Like she's, she's bouncing around and it's like, it's not a lot of female gurus anywhere in any society. And
0: so as for like whether or not she goes to Tibet, because it's purported that she tried to go yeah. to Tibet once or twice and then ultimately got in on the third try. And it's I, I kept that sort of out of this narrative because again, it's uh, the absoluteness of it yeah. doesn't matter so much. Just like it doesn't matter whether the mass who she identified as the masters right, in her right. past really matter. Gary Lockman goes into a deep exploration of how it would have been difficult to enter Tibet at this time, despite it being geographically large. So, for those who don't know, the Tibetan Plateau is about a quarter of modern China, and it's really, really high up. It is. Basically, what feels like ground level on the Tibetan plateau is the height of Mount Rainier in Washington. So it takes a while to the switchbacks alone to get up there. There's only so many roads that get you kind of up that high from any side of it. And those are, again, known. And at this time, it was really, really common for foreigners to be kicked out, sent away, killed by bandits. It wasn't considered open. Tibet wasn't considered open until the Englishman, Sir Francis Youngblood, led a military expedition in 1903. And the first Englishman met with the Dalai Lama only in 1811.
1: So is this is where Shangri-La is coming from, right? Yes. Like there's an awareness of the place and they know there's like, it's a spiritual hub. And you're witnessing people trickling, trickling out of it sometimes who are very devout, but...
0: Any side that you look at the plateau, whether you're in India looking up through Dharamshala, whether you're yeah. looking at from Afghanistan, Pakistan, from the Russia side, from the Mongolia side, all you see is a wall of mountains. You see hills that get higher and higher and higher. And it can be can be really immediate. So desert and then up, mm-hmm. or it can be like you and I saw in Western China, where it's Oh, it's getting hilly. It's getting hillier. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And we're our bus is now going, you know, <laughs> on the yeah, refrigerator yeah, yeah. coil just for nine hours, just up. And <laughs> though it is huge, it is separate because of that.
1: Which lends a lot to its legend. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Like- and so what is it's sort of patrolled on the outskirts because you have the British in India, in Nepal, in this whole region. Hmm. And there were some that testified that. Having seen or heard of a white woman traveling alone in the region in 1854, and 1867 that matched what would have been Blavatsky's description enough that people drew the lines like, this this was Madame Blavatsky. And it
1: doesn't seem like there would be an incentive for your average colonial border guard to lie about that.
0: It was enough of a memory that you're like, yeah, I will testify to this really weird thing yeah. that
1: happened. It would stand out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So again, it's a fascinating place because of the obscurity of clear knowledge about it then and now, then being before the time it always seems to have occupied this sort of mystical space
2: of yeah
0: of hidden knowledge and it does so to this day and it's where she talked about it as being the source of the secret school and there are people that use the moniker secret school now i sure i could do a whole episode about it a hub of knowledge or learning and given that in tibet there is the whole Lama system there is a mm-hmm. university created style of understanding tibetan buddhism and, or it could be so it could be her going to the region and just being exposed to it talking to people being in the interest it could be or it could be mm-hmm. bruce wayne going to the league of shadows i mean it's
1: yeah it's sort of the two but, spectrums what language are we operating out of right now Because like, obviously, the discourse is in English, but I'm wondering if they sexed up in the translation secret school when maybe it's not quite as provocative in... I mean, she seems like she'd be fluent in everything, but...
0: I must have already called it secret school because they go back to, you know, ancient Greek and Latin and this old stuff. So I feel like the word secret school is the word that was used as long as it was discussed in English. But I have to do a whole other episode about the origins of it because it's one of these... New Age things,
2: yeah. This way,
0: but I find it just endlessly fascinating that this idea of a secret hub (laughs) of knowledge, the which is occultism, is so delectable both then and now. It's not. There's something about it that we like as people. It explains something that experientially we otherwise are just grasping towards.
1: Right. It gives us vocabulary for things that are familiar enough to be recognized but distinct enough that you don't have better explanations. But I mean, this this vocabulary is, it's built into occult and esoteric. Mm-hmm. So she's really being quite consistent and kind of being like anonymous masters, the secret school. It's like, yeah, if you're going to present yourself as a student of the world of occultism, it is hidden from view.
0: But likewise, it would have been beyond weird. If she came and be like, here's my full resume everywhere I've been, Mm -hmm. how long I studied, who I studied with, notes of distinction. Right. Not only would that have been possible to produce, would you even think about what you're doing in that way?
1: Well, if you're trying to start a cult, maybe. But she's clearly not trying to present a resume to be the matriarch of a school of thought. She's trying to set a precedent that allows other people to join in and, and advance the, the research and learning that she's doing.
0: It's also why I can see her from a very human perspective. She's, yes, she's a daughter of privilege. She has lots of resources to be able to do this. However mm-hmm. much or little she ended up traveling, she's moving around to some degree. Mm-hmm. And she's seeing stuff. And you're absorbing it and you're, it seems very human and understandable the way she's approaching learning about all this or, and then yeah. wanting to naturally produce something. You and I wanted to produce something. So we made a podcast. She did not mm-hmm. have that option. so <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> She did the next best thing. A Theosophical Society. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but well, that- and, and to your point, the the absoluteness of her travel matters less than She's getting these ideas from somewhere. She's definitely meeting people. So it's like if you talked to a Tibetan monk, does it matter if you went to Tibet? Dude is from Tibet. Dude is involved in these systems, and you got some exposure to those ideas.
0: I mean, the debate there is then if you're using it like, are you on a train somewhere and you run into right. a Frenchman, and it's like I'm, you know, yeah. I heard that the situation in France is. And you're taking an absolute when it was really just one guy's perspective. You know, from wherever he's from. That is, and I think that could potentially be really at play and Mm -hmm. what led to this soup of Eastern ideas that becomes what she spreads afterwards. And that also seems very human. I understand both the inclination to do that and then how it's just interesting to think, oh, and this seeded the the new everything that would become new age or yeah. non-traditional thought in the United, in not just the United States in the western world
1: it's it's appealing and also incredibly plausible it sounds like something that probably would have happened. I
0: mean, how many people did we know in China that probably did a version of that talking about their oh, yeah. year abroad?
2: <laughs> yeah. So,
0: yeah. So Anyway, this is where we will end part one. And then, oof, oof. You see now why I had to make two parts, because we haven't even begun to get into yeah. her life in the United States and how she starts being She's not even H. Helena Madame Blavatsky as we know her.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I feel like you've been making croissants and I've just been watching you like layered butter. Like you haven't even rolled it yet. You've just been laminating the dough. Just preheating oh, I'm the Oh, salivating. Oven.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how she gets established as an occult voice uh, when she lands in New York at age 42 in 1873. With She does not have a ton of funds. This is a key detail that I find very interesting. And she's also in New York. At the time of like the Bowery Boys, Gangs of New York era. Yeah. And she's not staying in nice places. That is what is known about this time. And so next time we'll explore how it gets started, who the key dudes are that come into her orbit that are also very understandable from the human level. And yeah, how she becomes a force to be reckoned with, how she gets debunked, (laughs) which to answer your your earliest question, yes, it is kind of a Harry Houdini.
1: But- I I mean, it would have been really just perfect if it was Harry Houdini himself. It was not.
0: It's a little too early for him, but he would have been right there. He was there in spirit because <laughs> it's the Society for well, Psychical Research. They, come.
1: Yeah. Well, and it seems like the companion to spiritualism and the like, I don't know, man, there's forces out there. Would be skeptics being like, all right, we got to team up and mm-hmm. shed some light on these. Yeah. And we'll talk about how she, she, she gets so to India, wild.
0: all the crazy adventures and weird stuff that happens to her there. And then her kind of seminal works, the, spirit, the secret doctrine, her death. And how theosophy, where it went afterwards and its contributions. and it definitely has a role in feminism. One of the tome, the academic tomes that I got into was about theosophy and, and feminism in the new world, or something to that effect. I'll have a full title for you next time. It was pretty dense. And we
1: got more more to go. The more you talk, the more I'm just like, Why is this news to me? Because so much of what she's touched on is so familiar. And I'm sure just based on what you've teased, the ideas are things that are like, even if you're not really woo... They're in the public consciousness. Like, we all know about crystals. We've all heard of chakras. Mm -hmm. Like, whether or not you've studied it or interacted with it meaningfully. And so much of what she has done up to this point, just, like, becoming Jesus, you know? Like, the the part that's not in the Bible. It's just like, holy shit, she has been busy. She has been learning. And at this point, it doesn't even sound like she's hauling around a trunk of notes that will become her book, right? She's just being in the world.
0: And even if we... (laughs) Despite your your Jesus analogy, even if <laughs> if she's just an interesting lady of the time, it is still yeah. incredibly interesting, even at its most no one sort else of is stripped doing down. This. Yeah, as someone who lives sort of a non linear world, a globe trotting lifestyle, I feel a lot of affinity for Povatsky
1: The other phrase that keeps ringing through my head since we're talking about colonialism is cultural appropriation. Mm. But it seems like the predicate for that is taking ideas or adopting ideas without giving credit. And she may not be naming names, but she's giving credit to the sources that she's pulling from. Like she built giving credit to sources into the school, if I'm understanding it correctly. Well, we
0: saw from that document of from 1881 that she variably yeah. says we are not we're not taking any disciples. We are not the magic. It is not in me, which I think is very, the thing that defines her as not being in the questionable guru cult leader
2: category.
0: She did not want disciples. I think she wanted to be supported, but in a way that's no different than how someone of a nobility class would be bankrolled or expected to be bankrolled through life. I think you're going to really like seeing what happens to her in in the U.S., in New York in part two. Yeah.
1: Oh, man.